Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to further understanding of the First World War and have 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 18th of May 2020 and this is episode 161. On today's podcast, I talked to Professor Matthew Stibby, Professor of Modern History at Sheffield Hallam University, about his recent book on civilian internment during the Great War. This is published by Palgrave Macmillan. I spoke to Matthew from his office in Sheffield. Hi Matthew, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yes, um, well there's several reasons why I became interested in the um, in the First World War. I think um, in the first instance I, as a student, as an undergraduate student and a postgraduate student, I was fascinated by the whole debate about the origins of the First World War and particularly the Anglo-German dimension to the origins of the First World War. And I was lucky enough to be supervised for my MA and then my PhD at the University of Sussex by Professor John Rule, who's uh, one of the leading world experts in that in that field and made uh, uh, many contributions to that field, particularly in the area of the, the policies of the Kaiser and the imperial government in Germany in the lead up to the um, Great War. So um, uh, that was, that's really one of the first reasons, the, the whole debate on how the war started and particularly from the Anglo-German end. But I also had uh, two other reasons. One's a, a family reason, that um, my own um, grandfather, Edward Stibby, was interned in Germany as a civilian during the First World War. And although I didn't really get very much um, information about that through family um, circles, I was, I was, it was always in the back of my mind that one day I'd like to research something about the uh, internment of Germans in Britain and, and uh, British civilians in Germany. And secondly, when I was an undergraduate student at Bristol, it was um, the year 1989, and um, I remember one of the tutors there giving a lecture on modern German history and really telling us that German history came to an end in 1945. The division of Germany was pretty much a permanent feature of world politics, European politics, and that if you wanted to study German history after 1945, it's really a matter of studying the Cold War and the rivalry between the Soviet Union and NATO or the, or the United States. And of course, during that year, that academic year, 1989 to 90, everything happened in Eastern Europe and in uh, Berlin, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I was lucky enough to be able to visit um, Berlin shortly after the fall of the um, Berlin Wall. And suddenly everything was opened up again. The whole German question uh, was suddenly opened up again. And um, although I was really interested in the First World War, the, the fact that East Germany had collapsed and the archives in East Germany had opened up again meant that for the first time, Western historians had unfettered access to many documents uh, about Germany's role in the First World War that have been in, in East German archives. A few Westerners have been able to go and visit those before the uh, end of the First World War, but this is the first time really in the early 90s that uh, Western historians could have unfettered access. I began a PhD at the University of Sussex, but was lucky enough to be able to go and spend a year in Berlin researching through those archives. That's really what, uh, what thrilled me about that time. Uh, being able to research Germany in the First World War. Which leads us on to the book itself. Um, before we actually look at in civilian internment during the Great War, was there a sort of a practice of combatant nations interning civilian populations before the Great War in conflicts? Yes, I mean, the most famous example is obviously is in the uh, Second Anglo-Boer War in 1890, from 1899 to 1902, when the British used internment against, largely against Boer women and children as a means 
of uh, trying to defeat the uh, the Boer men who revolt against uh, um, the, author- the British authorities in South Africa. The, the Boer War is often used as, a, as an example, but it is very much, in that, in that context, very much a, a, um, a one-sided affair. The Boer War was very much asymmetric warfare, which meant that one side used internment against the other. What was unique about the First World War um, and the use of internment in that conflict was that both sides used internment against each other. And in fact, internment became a worldwide global phenomenon in which roughly equal numbers were interned by um, both sides. So the First World War stands out as being the first time it was used as a multilateral lever. And it was also on a much, much bigger scale and for much longer duration than during previous conflicts. So could you start by giving us a broad overview of that scale, about the number of civilians interned by nations uh, during the Great War? Yes, I mean, the actual figures are still, uh, um, there's no one single figure that's, that it's easy to give. I would suggest that at least 800,000 civilians were interned worldwide, although some, some calculations could go as high as 2 million. Indeed, the International Committee of the Red Cross reckoned on about 2 million. It depends who is counted as a civilian prisoner of war and how, and how, the, how the counting is done. Whether at least 800,000, I would say, officially, and maybe twice as many, perhaps up to 2 million, unofficially. And how does that compare to military personnel who were held in captivity during the Great War? Well, there was, so there was 8 to 9 million military prisoners of war. So although um, clearly there were more military personnel than civilians, Civilians still represent a significant minority of prisoners. In terms of overall experience, often um, there, there's a lot of comparisons we can make between the experience of military and civilian prisons of war. Inside the prison camps, civilian prisoners, prison, prison camps were often run like military prison camps, and the language used by the civilian prisoners is often reflected the, the military hierarchies of the day. There are two principal differences, though. The first is that obviously most military prisoners who were held were men, youngish men, men in the men who'd been serving in the armed forces. Whereas civilian prisoners, in some contexts, could include women, children, and men who were well beyond uh, standard military age. And the second thing is that in the sphere of international politics and diplomacy, and the um, debates had by international legal experts, civilians were treated very much as a separate category to military prisoners. So in terms of of, of diplomatic negotiations over releases, in terms of the intervention of the International Red Cross, um, and also in terms of propaganda as well. Both sides accused the, um, um, the other side of having broken international laws or general humanitarian conventions by interning civilians alongside military prisoners. So the, the, in bureaucratic, legal, diplomatic, propagandistic terms, the distinction was always kept. What sort of groups of civilians were interned by nations during the conflict? Okay, well, the standard um, type of civilian internee, and the one that's been most written about, is the um, enemy alien who was caught on enemy territory um, at the outbreak of the war. So these would be classically men of military age, um, aged between about 17 and and into their late 40s, early 50s, and they were held to prevent them from returning home um, to join the, uh, uh, the, the armies of their home state. So that's like a kind of preventative prisoner of war system. But they only represented a fraction of the total number of um, internees during the First World War. We also have people who were deported from occupied territories into the enemy 
country to be held as prisoners of war. So we can think of, of, of occupied territory, for instance, um, German-occupied Belgium and northern France, parts of the uh, German-occupied East, um, the, uh, on the Italian front, uh, um, um, after the Battle of Caporetto, the Austro-Hungarian army deported a lot of Italian civilians um, and so forth. So these are, these are enemy civilians, but they weren't caught on enemy territory when the war broke out. Instead, they were living in occupied territories. A third category we might include are the um, internally displaced um, refugees, persons who are um, interned by their own governments because they've been displaced from their own homes, typically in border areas where the enemy army is threatening, or they've been evacuated by their own armies from war zones and are interned supposedly for their own safety, but also for reasons of military security by their own governments. Uh, we might call them today internally displaced persons. And interestingly, we might even take a fourth type of internee. Military internees is a word that we might use to describe military personnel who are interned by neutral governments because they crossed into neutral territory during the course of, of fighting. So lots of different varieties of civilian internee. In the Anglo-German sphere between Britain and Germany, most of the internees were the, the standard enemy aliens um, or men. But if we looked um, to continental Europe, to the situation in German-occupied France or the situation in Habsburg-occupied Italy, we'd find a very different type of civilian being interned. And what sort of conditions were civilians uh, held in? A huge variety um, uh, from, the, from, uh, from very reasonable under the circumstances. I mean, no form of internment is going to be comfortable but um, uh, from the very reasonable to the absolutely dire. Um, part of that depended on a local level, on the attitude of local military commanders and on local um, food supply conditions, but it also depended at international level on the principle of reciprocity. For instance, British prisoners in Germany were treated quite well um, because uh, Britain held about 10 times as many Germans as vice versa, and that meant the German government was anxious not to harm the interests of Germans living in Britain and the British Empire by treating German, British prisoners, civilian and military, badly. And what was the motivation of countries to intern populations? I think you've already touched on some of the reasons, but were there, yeah, uh, were there other internal political or social reasons that, that countries gave for, in, for interning their civilian populations? Yes. Um, uh, there are, it's worth thinking about this. The reasons are very complex, and there's a, a, um, it can depend on, on particular contexts as to which was more important than, than, uh, than others. Um, but we could start by thinking about um, issues of military security and fear of espionage being one of those. In the build-up to the First World War, there's a lot of uh, political upset about espionage and potential espionage. That can then melt into a more general xenophobia, um, hostility towards enemy aliens, a feeling that they are a kind of enemy um, within that needs to be um, removed from society, locked up from society. Hostility towards um, particular minority groups, particular immigrant groups that we, might, we, that we might encounter. Then we have, I mean, as well as xenophobia, we can talk more generally about nationalism, that, 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 that part of the mobilization, the cultural mobilization for war in most societies is to whip up hatred of the enemy and hatred of, of, of enemy nations. But interestingly, in the Austro-Hungarian case, for instance, it's not so much nationalism, but anti-nationalism that causes internment because the, Austro the biggest fear of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was nationalist movements that sought to bring an end to the multinational 
um, Habsburg monarchy. So um, um, opposition to Italian nationalism, Serb nationalism, uh, Ukrainian nationalism might lead to internment of particular national groups in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then you asked about social causes. One of the things I particularly emphasise in my book is a continuity with pre-war fears, which really go right back into the 19th century, pre-war fears of the pauper alien, the alien who, who becomes destitute um, and therefore a burden on the public purse. Now, when the war broke out, many um, enemy aliens found themselves persecuted by, 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 by being sacked from their jobs or um, kicked out of their accommodation, and that left them destitute. And um, local authorities, for instance, the poor law guardians in Britain would be a good example, were always very concerned about pauper aliens, and having them locked up was a way of solving that particular problem. We can find similar instances, for instance, in Austria-Hungary as well, where it's, it's, the enemy aliens are being interned largely because they are, are destitute. And what was the situation in Britain? What, um, what, was, what measures did Britain take uh, against uh, uh, foreign nationals who were resident here at the beginning of the war? So at the very beginning, only a handful of, of Germans were arrested as, as suspected spies who were, on a, or, who were on a list. But gradually in the first few months of the war, up to 10,000, 13,000 Germans were arrested and held in camp. Um, um, this is partly, as I said, um, about uh, spy mania, but also the, the fear of the, those Germans who become destitute, being made homeless, um, uh, and or were targets of anti-German riots, which first broke out on a large scale in October 1914. But then, over the course of the following few months, after October 1914, some of the Germans were released, particularly those who were trusted and had been long-term residents um, of Britain, because partly because the, um, the Home Office and the War Office were running out of space keep, um, to, to hold them. Um, and it was only really after the Lusitania riots in May 1915, the uh, riots that took place not only in Britain, but in many parts of the British Empire, um, after the sinking of the, um, uh, the, the ship Lusitania by a German um, uh, U-boat, um, that the, the, the British government moved towards wholesale internment of all German men in Britain. Um, and that, that meant um, opening up new camps, and it also meant expanding the facilities on the Isle of Man, where a large number, not all, but a large number of the Germans in Britain, and indeed across the British Empire to some extent, were held on two camps in the Isle of Man, uh, at Douglas and at Nokalay. And did non-combatant and neutral nations uh, intern, their, intern civilian populations? Yes, indeed. Um, we can take the two, two, the two most important examples will be Switzerland and the Netherlands, um, although there are other, other more minor examples like Spain and, um, and, and, and Sweden. Um, yes, I mean, that's another motive for internment, um, twofold for the um, neutral countries. Firstly, under international law, neutral countries were obliged to intern military personnel who strayed into their territory as a, as a means of upholding their neutrality. That had already been the case in the 19th century, for instance, in the Franco-Prussian War, when one of the French armies moved into Switzerland to evade capture by the Prussian forces. And the Swiss government was obliged to intern that army rather than let them go and let them back out again, because otherwise it will be violating its own neutrality. So both Switzerland and the Netherlands interned military personnel who'd strayed into their territory, um, whether that be deserters individually or whole armies who were seeking um, refuge uh, as, as a means of evading capture or death at the hands of the enemy. Um, and we call those military internees. They're not prisoners of war in the sense that the Netherlands and Switzerland were neutral countries. They weren't at war with um, any country but they were obliged to hold those prisoners for the duration of the war. 
Secondly, both of those countries have humanitarian motives for interning um, military and civilian personnel. Uh, both agreed by um, bilateral treaties to take in groups of um, uh, uh, sick prisoners of war, who've been uh, military and civilian, who've been in uh, enemy captivity for some time, who would then be brought to Switzerland or the Netherlands and offered uh, a lighter form of captivity and medical treatment. Uh, that, 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 that was, um, in the case of the Netherlands, that was done uh, for Britain and Germany. And in the case of Switzerland, that was done for um, the British, French, Belgian, Austro-Hungarian and German governments all signed agreements to allow limited numbers of of ill prisoners into um, Switzerland. Now, the motive was primarily humanitarian, at least for the Swiss federal government, but there's also economic motives there. The Swiss tourist industry um, was suffering greatly from the outbreak of the war, and many of the prisoners were kept in hotels and resorts, um, and, that, and in that way kept themselves um, financially afloat. And for the Swiss medical profession as well, it was a very important opportunity to learn about um, military medicine and medical sides of captivity by having groups of prisoners held on there, uh, held in particular, uh, particular places in Switzerland. Some cantons in Switzerland took British, some took French prisoners, some took German, and so forth. If the prisoners hadn't recovered after three months and were considered to be permanently incapacitated for military service, they could then be repatriated back to their home countries. But if they were only only um, uh, lightly wounded, um, they would have to stay in Switzerland for the duration of the war. How did the gender, class and ethnicity shape the experience of internment? Yes, I mean, um, certainly internment was a gendered and gendering experience. Obviously, for men who are held in captivity, they are emasculated male civilians. They have not, not only have they not had the opportunity to fight for their country in uniform, but they are taken away from their family roles and their civic roles within their own nation so that they uh, often um, the men who've been in internment uh, felt a certain sense of shame at the, their inactivity um, during during the war and although there were certain celebrations um, in um, allied countries when civilian prisoners were returned at the end of the war very quickly after a few months after the end of the war civilian prisoners were really very low down on the what we might call the commemorative pecking order, and uh, were very loath to talk about their experiences. There's a certain element of, of shame for men of, of not, having, not having fought. There were some women, in particular contexts, who were held in captivity, um, particularly in Austria-Hungary, um, and particularly among refugee populations, um, and that led to a whole, um, uh, 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 particularly in camps in Austria-Hungary where there's a large um, uh, death rate among children, that could lead to very severe consequences for women um, and mothers, but also women whose main breadwinners were um, taken into internment often suffered even worse consequences than their, than, their, um, than their fathers or husbands who were in internment. For instance, when I wrote about the Ruhleben camp in Berlin, which was used to hold British civilian internees, a good portion of the British men held in Ruhleben near Berlin had German wives and children some of whom were living in Berlin in, in the immediate vicinity of the camp. And they were less, by, by, by the second half of the war, they fed worse than their husbands in captivity. Their husbands were fed by the Red Cross. Trains arrived quite regularly with Red Cross food parcels, whereas the women, who may have been born German, but by marriage were legally British, had no access to German uh, charities because they were British, and they could only access British uh, relief if they went to Britain, because under the... Under, the, under, under wartime conditions, Britain would not be sending money 
to an enemy country, to Germany, to support them. So one of the most amazing things that I found, which is very telling about internment, is that after the, um, in, during the second half of the war, the wives who were allowed to visit their husbands about once a fortnight, I think, were um, smuggling food out of the camp because there was more food in the camp than, was, uh, than there was outside in Berlin. The prisoners were better fed because they had access to the Red Cross. So women could suffer very severe penalties if their husbands were taken into, into captivity. You asked about social class. Social class distinctions were kept very much in Britain and in Germany. In Britain, um, there were some very wealthy German immigrants and, some, uh, and at the other extreme, some very poor German immigrants. On the Isle of Man, the Germans who could pay, were in turn in effect in the hotels in Douglas, which again were able to keep themselves financially afloat during the uh, uh, drought of tourism during the First World War. So if you have money to pay your hotel bills, you could even, if you're very rich, pay to have your, your butler with you um, to look after you every day in, in, the, in the hotels on the, on the seafront in Douglas. But the majority of Germans who had no money had to stay in the, um, in the camps at Nokelo on the west side of the Isle of Man, where conditions were a lot were uh, you know were a lot a lot more basic some people had money at the beginning of the war and then it ran out because the war lasted for four years and they ran out of their savings in Ruhleben, the camp for the british prisoners it was said that um in the first winter of war when there was a problem uh with uh logistical problems with the red cross food parcels there was a kind of basic communism everybody had to share the same meager food rations and so forth but it was said that as soon as the red cross passed food parcels started to arrive regularly from about March 1915, the class system came back. Those with wealth and privilege were able to uh, use um, access to better quality Red Cross food parcels to, um, to assert their class um, identities. And again, in Ruhleben, among the British internees, there are some very wealthy people, and there are also some uh, people without real means, particularly the large number of merchant, British merchant sailors who were there. So class certainly played a feature and, uh, in, in internment situations, and uh, particularly in the, in the um, camps uh, that, were, that, that had better conditions, you often find that the class hierarchies emerged. About ethnicity and race, yes, um, in, in purely bureaucratic terms and in the way that the Red Cross um, handled things, uh, internment was race neutral. You'd find, for instance, in the Red Cross archives in Geneva, the list of prisoners that were kept in particular camps you, unless you know already, you, you cannot tell the race of a prisoner. You can tell their gender, you can tell their nationality, but not their, um, not their race. Um, on the other hand, race did play an important role in internment. There are several hundred black British and black French civilian prisoners held in Germany and Austria-Hungary. The authorities and the local population in um, Germany, Austria-Hungary, uh, and propagandists and newspapers often, spoke, often like to have photographs of the black prisoners. Um, uh, would often appear in newspapers alongside reports that Britain and France were allegedly not upholding the, uh, not, not doing their duty by upholding the, the supposed superiority of the white race um, by bringing black sailors and black soldiers to continental Europe to fight. Britain and France were accused of failing to uphold the white man's burden in Africa by allowing German white German civilians to be held and guarded by black, um, uh, by black guards, by, by black British and black French guards. So it often appeared in propaganda. And within the camps as well, some of the white British, white French prisoners also sought to uphold the racial hierarchies of the time by isolating uh, or marginalised black prisoners in their midst. So how did international organisations such as the Red Cross and religious groups react to civilian internment over the course of the war? Yes, well, the International Red Cross, International Committee of the Red Cross in, in uh, Geneva was very concerned 
almost from the beginning of the war to uh, look after the interests of civilian uh, internees. So um, there was very, very, in the first few weeks of the war, the International Committee of the Red Cross set up a a prisoner, international prisoner war agency to facilitate um, communications between families and prisoners. And in October 1914, they established a specific civilian section of that prisoner of war agency in order to uphold what they saw was the important distinction between civilian and military prisoners. The International Committee of the Red Cross did inspections of camps, of civilian camps as well as military camps, and published those inspection reports. And Friedrich Ferrier, the head of the civilian section of the Red Cross's International Prisoner of War Agency, also campaigned for an end to civilian internment on all sides, uh, unsuccessfully, but nonetheless um, campaigned very strongly that civilian prisoners, civilians should not be held as prisoners of war, and certainly they shouldn't be held for long periods of time as um, civilian as prisoners of war. A lot, um, and the International Committee of the Red Cross also worked alongside diplomats and it worked alongside various religious organisations. Perhaps the most important religious organisation involved in humanitarian work, not, by, not, not, not the only one, but the most important one in an Anglo-German context would be the Quakers, um, the Society of Friends, who had a, a committee that um, looked, uh, in Britain that looked after the interests of um, Germans, Austrians and Hungarians in distress. And that included those in captivity and those not in captivity. And it had a sister organisation in Berlin run by a Swiss woman called Dr Elizabeth Rotten, uh, who had been in Cambridge before the First World War and worked from, in Berlin during the First World War, looking after the interests of stranded British um, civilians, including those in internment and those who were not in internment as well. So they did a lot of work with the wives and children of um, internees, keeping them uh, from um, absolute um, destitution. It's interesting that um, the medical profession was also very interested in um, the effects, long-term effects of captivity on military and civilian prisoners of war, and that could lead to a certain amount of conflict with the Quakers and other humanitarian organisations. An important Swiss doctor called Dr Adolf Fischer, who worked briefly, as he was seconded briefly to the Swiss um, legation in London and carried out inspections of British camps and Isle of Man camps for the Swiss um, legation. He wrote a book um, about the mental health impact of uh, the impact of long-term captivity on the mental health of internees. And he was able to access the camps on the Isle of Man, the civilian camps, through the help of the Quakers. But they were not so pleased with his report on barbed wire disease because he wrote that no amount of humanitarian aid could mitigate the severe consequences of long-term internment on uh, the mental health of internees. The Quakers spent a lot of time organising for games and arts and crafts and things to keep the prisoners uh, distracted, things for them to do whilst they're in captivity. And Vicious was, Vicious was saying really after two or three years of captivity, impact on their mental health is so bad that none of this is actually having much positive effect and that the only way to prevent full-scale uh, mental breakdowns among prisoners is to release them after three years of captivity. So he saw internment, I suppose, as an absolute um, evil that, that could not be mitigated. Finally, Matthew, where can people learn more about your work? Well, um, I've published um, very recently, as you've kindly said, I've published a, a very recent book with Palgrave Macmillan um, on civilian internment in Europe and across the globe, 1914 to 1920. That can be purchased on Palgrave's website or via Amazon. I previously published a, a study of a single camp, the Ruleben camp uh, near Berlin for British civilian internees. That was, in, um, that was published by Manchester University Press in 2008. It can be purchased on Manchester University Press website or 
Amazon. So Matthew, do you give um, talks to the Western Front? And if so, where can people get hold of you if they want to book you? Yes, I do. I do do talks for the Western Front Association, and I'm available. Uh, you can contact me via my email address, m.stibby at shu.ac.uk. Matthew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for, for inviting. You have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.